Today on the Bible Archives, we are going to get into Genesis chapters 1 through 3. So if you did not listen to the uh, overview of Genesis, that might be helpful, but you don't need it in order to interact with these. And what we're also assuming is that uh, you either have the text in front of you, or uh, you're, you've read it and are familiar with it, so you're coming to get some more depth on it, um, or you're going to listen to this and that's going to help you as you interact with uh, any reading that you're going to do. Uh, but as we enter into these first chapters of Genesis, a couple things that are important to remember is that this is written as a foundational narrative for a group of people who are uh, navigating a world of exile and suffering and uh, potential extinction. And they're trying to set the standard for who they are as a people, what the world is supposed to be like, how they should understand their covenant, their relationship to the land, all of that. So that's kind of embedded in here. Genesis is also a prequel to Exodus. So as we're uh, reading the book, remember, this is a book about beginnings. It's an ideological story. And, and in fact, you know, when first is the first words of the book in Hebrew, Bereshit. Um, but the idea of Genesis being um, about that cosmological significance. So it's not, not just about origins or history. This is about the story of the earth and Israel's beginnings and how the beginning of the world and Israel relates to each other with cosmological significance and uh, especially for what their covenant is supposed to do within the world as a whole. So when I read Genesis, especially here, here we go talking about creation. When I read Genesis, I'm going, uh, why is the world this way? That's the question. Not how did creation happen? And we, we interacted with this in the overview. This isn't science. It's not even necessarily theology. It's a story. Um, and, and especially, we're going to see this several times uh, in today's episode. Genesis is based on countering the dominant narratives of Israel's neighbors. So you've got to be paying attention to that. Most of the stories are, are lifted from other myths and given new and different meaning in the, in, in, in the context, or they're just directly opposed to it. And they're, they're trying to make that statement. So it's important to pay attention to how these narratives are different and how they are deconstructing uh, prevailing stories to help establish who Israel is supposed to be. So uh, Genesis 1. And uh, this, is, this is a text that needs some things stated up front. Mm-hmm. When you read Genesis 1, you're reading a poem. Okay. Say that straight up. Now, you had mentioned in the overview that Genesis 1 is uh, written by a priestly source. Yes. I think that's very obvious uh, because it's a very ordered depiction. It's uh, very liturgical in its approach. But as you read, even if you just read it in English, you, you see a particular pattern to the rhythm, to the meter, to the form. Um, so you yeah, read it as a poem. Another thing I think is really important. Secondly, uh, Genesis 1 is not meant, in my opinion, to coincide with Genesis 2. No, I think they're separate stories. Yeah, I know. I think they can run parallel to each other. Sure. But uh, it's not like this is one scene of the same story and then Genesis 2 is the next scene of the same story. 
there's a good chance that these narratives and their origin uh, were not even known by different audiences. Mm-hmm. You know? They may have been written by two different sources. Yeah. Now, they're compiled together, and that's fine. Mm-hmm. But we have to see them uh, as separate angles, uh, not the same story. Right. Um, what I find frustrating... But I accept not only is uh, Genesis 1 not a scientific endeavor, mm-hmm. it's not a technically a philosophical one uh, either. Uh, no. th- you, we're going to get some philosophical byproducts here. And that's what mm-hmm. we talked about with uh, science, theology, history, even philosophy. It's not a philosoph- philosophy book. It's not a science book. Those can be byproducts and we'll get some philosophically. Right. But like, I love metaphysics. I love cosmology. I love ontology. I I love thinking about those things, especially within our tradition. We're not getting a whole lot of that here. It it never talks about God's origin. And this is interesting because it's unlike a lot of cosmologies of the day, especially the more Greek, uh, like the pre-Socratics you get. They're fascinated by that subject. Genesis doesn't seem to be that concerned about it. And and the lack of reference uh, could be a clue to their monotheism, even though that's kind of still developing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it could be a clue to it because they're just assuming, yeah, there's, there's a, a being, a transcendent being who's beyond everything. That's kind of implied by it. But they don't state that outright. Um, so those are a couple of things going on. What What are some things that you think are really important to state up front about Genesis 1? Well, first of all, um, I think as we approach these stories, we need to keep in in mind the cultural weight that um, these have had for us, for the Jewish people who are ancient Jewish people who were reading these stories later, they would have heard more um, um, kind of a trajectory or a microcosm towards the Abrahamic covenant. For Christian people, it's often about the fall and the origin and, and of original sin. Um, but especially this first chapter, I think when the priestly people were writing it down, they meant it possibly as a kind of a liturgy. Yeah. And I think that that is something that other scholars have said, that... Um, for example, you see that rhythm. You'll see in... The first part of it, it says, you know, God said, let there will be light. And then going back, um, day four, okay, so day one, let there be light. Day four, we get heavenly bodies. Day two, we have the air and the water are separated from one another. Then day five, we get birds in the air, fish in the sea. And some people even think it may have been a kind of call and response, or it'd be like Mm. the priest would say, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And then the people respond, and it was good. Or he might yeah. have said, and it was good. And then the people would say, and that was the morning and the evening and the first day. So it was almost like that kind of a call and response liturgy, which I think is really interesting. And and one of the reasons why scholars think this was the priestly source or the priestly school that wrote this down. Yeah, it definitely. Uh, uh, one scholar, James Okoy, actually calls this a proclamation of faith. Um, he has a quote. He says, God's action, which Israel has experienced in its history, is extended to the whole history and to the whole world. And when they would recite this, especially within, you know, an exilic experience, they're making a proclamation of faith. Mm -hmm. And so to see that be used in that way, liturgically, absolutely. The the connection of the days also kind of brings up, there's a lot of motifs going on that um, you see generally throughout the entire poem. Uh, one one that we pointed out last episode 
is that most cosmologies have the world being created out of some sort of form of violence right. from the gods. So one kills the other and, and that creates the earth. Okay, so this is Marduk and uh, Tiamat. Mm-hmm. They have this interaction. Um, the absence of this violence is striking within Genesis 1. This would have been a surprise to the people hearing it. Yeah, it, it would. Have, it, this would be one of those retcons. Yep. Um, instead of violence... And uh, the the world, the matter being created out of like the decaying bodies of some sort of uh, being, right? God just uses words, mm-hmm. and that becomes a really striking um, part of Israel's identity through time. Um, so you look at the Enuma Elish, you look at Genesis, you're seeing this Israel kind of against its neighbors. Um, further within that, you're you're not going to get a single definite article in front of a material body, okay? Right. So, so there's no personification of the sun, the moon, mm-hmm. the exactly. plants. the deep. Yeah, all of that's mm-hmm. just, they don't even include it. And if you don't if you don't put that connection to the Enuma Elish, it's like, oh, they just, you know, they have water and plants and trees right. and mm-hmm. the sun. Uh, instead, they're going, yeah, those aren't gods. Right. We're, we're, we're going to remove agency from those things. And it would kind of be the subversive slap in the face to some of Israel's neighbors. So that's something to pay attention to. Definitely. Um, another thing I want to I bring up is the literality of days. Yes. Okay. This is a big issue, as you stated, amongst mm-hmm. Christians. Uh, I always find it fascinating when Christians are reading the Hebrew scriptures and they pay zero attention to what the Jewish people have said about these texts for a lot longer. Uh, <laughs> exactly. So, uh, the, the first, uh, the idea of days, you know, if we wanted to get more scientific about it, you know, requires a um, some sort of celestial body to determine that. Right. And those don't exist until day four. Mm-hmm. So that's a common, you know, almost a trope that people right. bring up against that idea. Sure. It's like, how can this be unscientific? But if you just look at the Hebrew word used, you could translate it as process. Mm-hmm. So the first process or the first movement or the first step. It's not, it's not specifically understood as a day as in time. Mm-hmm. It's, it's more of this movement towards. Um, so that's something that I really, we got to make sure we're on the same page about, right? Oh, absolutely. And another um, scholar that I had listened to, John Walton, pointed out the fact that those seven days was kind of symbolic or maybe even a trope of ancient literature that that was the amount of time it takes to build a temple. And even though, of course, you literally don't build a temple in seven days or you don't build a temple in seven years, that idea of building it in seven days or years was expected. It's like you hear seven days, you know they're talking about a temple. And one thing that's interesting is there's actually kind of a short creation cycle in Proverbs, and that is where they are talking about wisdom. And wisdom as a co-creator with God, and that's uh, Proverbs chapter 8 goes to the whole thing. And then right at the beginning of Proverbs chapter 9, verse 1, it says, wisdom, she, it's personified as a woman, she has built her house on seven pillars. So it's like going back to that same idea of mm-hmm. seven, seven being a temple, seven being seven days. And so it's like we're seeing God building the world as sort of a temple. And in connection with seven in reference to temple, seven takes on a significant meaning in, in the Jewish imagination Absolutely. for completeness, wholeness, right. order. Okay. 
So, so the the number is more significant than yeah. uh, what the number is referring to. Yeah, which it's would not be the length the of the day; it's the fact that there were seven of them. That's in their in the ancient Jewish mind would have been what stood yeah. out. And that ancient Jewish mind—that's something that we have to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, you know, I again we talked last episode about um, a, a reader-oriented approach versus an author-oriented approach. Listen, I love reader-oriented approaches. Uh, you, as a, a modern American or wherever you're from reading it and going, what does this say to me? Yeah, that's great. And that can be helpful. Don't forget that somebody different from you wrote this and a culture and heritage and history different from you were the recipients of it. So it is really important to go, if you want to do the reader thing, fine, but also step into how did they hear this? Um, And just the first thing that comes to mind is they weren't trying to find a scientific answer to how creation was formed. No. They're asking different questions. And if we only allow ourselves to be captivated by that problem, which is a modern problem, we're going to miss all of the important things that they saw. Mm -hmm. Um, And and so there's a lot of uh, transposing that we have to do to our culture. We have to enter that primitive, primary uh, perspective of the world that comes from these ancient people. And then go, okay, so now what do we do with that? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's that's something important that we have to do. At the same time, uh, this whole idea from the priestly perspective of bringing order out of chaos, think about that in terms of exile. When you're in exile, what are you experiencing? Chaos. Right. Here's a story where they say, but our God brings order out of chaos. Yes. Whoa, beautiful Right. So you, you now we take that, we transpose that to our experience and we go, we can uh, put our faith in the same thing. Right. We can have the same sort of hope. We're still part of the same story. Absolutely. If you only get caught up in, well, was it seven days or and were the days 24 hours? Mm-hmm. You miss all that. Yeah. Don't, don't miss, don't miss all of that. Um, the last thing I'll say before we, we start getting into specific parts of the text is, uh, this Sabbath concept that's going yeah. to come actually at uh, chapter two, mm-hmm. um, but it's still part of the chapter one composition, um, but it was broken up at that point. Uh, it's this idea of to separate and uh, to cease. And you're going to get that image a lot uh, throughout this, like God separates the waters mm-hmm. um, and then you get the separation of the day of Sabbath and this holy ceasing. And I, I think there is something really important for Israel in that of their separation, their call through this uh, poetic liturgy to be different. Right. Um, so so that, those are a few things that I see. Anything that you think needs to, uh, we didn't hit yet that needs to be brought up before we dive in? Yeah, no, I think that, we pretty much covered it. It's the idea of separating their identity. This is who God is. This is how our God is different from the Babylonian gods and goddesses in that culture that they were living in and were immersed in. How can they separate themselves out? Because this is important in us an identity as a nation. Back in the ancient days, if your God was taken, for example, if your city was destroyed and they took your gods, your identity was lost. Now you have to worship the gods of the people who conquered you. The, the Israelites here, the Jewish people in Babylon said, no, our God is not connected to a place. It's connected to a people and to events. And so they are able to hold that identity, which had to be hard to do, 
in that, you know, Babylon was a very powerful and, and huge empire that was controlling them, and yet they held on to that because they said, our God is different because our God is about us and has followed us into exile. He did not get left behind. Our God did not get destroyed when we were yeah, captured. That's a, and that's something, again, you miss that. Right. If uh, you're only reading it from a very modern lens. Yeah, yeah, right. you've got to recognize that, that's that. That's a theme going on behind the scenes, all of this. Mm-hmm. All right, so uh, Genesis starts out, bare sheets. And uh, in English, we get the lines, in the beginning. Um, So looking at that part, and for some of you, you're going to be like, this feels like a slow trod through all of this. (laughs) Oh, yeah, just get used to that. Um, Oh, but it's so interesting. Yeah. You're going to want to walk slow so you can see. Think of it that way. Instead of driving your car over the landscape, you're walking through. Right, and you you can pay attention to more details. And Mm -hmm. and listen, you can fast forward or find something specific you're looking for. Do what you got to do. Sure. Uh, But this first line, in the beginning, um, there is a sense here of before all things. And uh, this is where I said it's not explicitly metaphysical uh, as far as philosophy goes. But there is this idea that something is outside of the world as we know it. Mm -hmm. Um, The other thing that I think is important about this is that in Genesis, the earth is not described as non-existent. Right. Uh, It's portrayed as existing in a raw form. Uh, So the world had, assumably, been created already Mm -hmm. before Genesis 1, verses 1. Sure, this is not creation out of nothing. Yes. Now, metaphysically, I'm all for creatio ex nihilo. (laughs) But that's that's not the point of this. No, that's why you can say this is not the point, is to talk about how the universe began. Right. So if you're just interacting with Genesis 1, uh, it appears that uh, creatio ex nihilo, creation itself, already happened. Right. Right. Um, which leaves a ton of scientific and historical room. That's not what this is concerned about. Uh, what this is concerned about is that the creator now was doing something with creation. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's the emphasis here. So maybe it, it, it is that the earth wasn't finished, and this would be the next part of its story. But creation has happened. Now what we're seeing is how this transcendent being interacts with creation as it already is yeah okay so that's when it says in the beginning it's not talking about uh the the big bang or uh the the start of uh sentient life it's talking about in the beginning of these people mm-hmm. okay um actually a better translation is when first god began to create which is why they call it bereshit when first yeah when first god began to create not like a beginning of things, but maybe more when God first began to impose order upon this chaos that we see with the deep. That gets really deep into Tiamat and Marduk. I don't know if we want to go there or not, but Tiamat herself was the deep in the Babylonian story. Mm-hmm. She is the goddess of the waters and, and the chaos and all that stuff. So it's almost like here's that polemic where they're saying, yes, but our God is imposing order upon what you're, you would see in your mind as a goddess right. so motif. Right, so if we wanted to paint this picture, it's not... Um Okay, they're about to tell us about the origin of um, cosmological existence. No, it's the their neighbors said that Timot was uh, the, the primary functionary yeah. of existence and known as the deep. Mm-hmm. Okay, now chaos. watch what happens because in our story, uh, the god of all of creation 
doesn't even acknowledge that Tiamat is a thing. Mm -hmm. And in fact, does what uh, none of those gods could. That's what's going on here. So it starts in the beginning. uh, When God created the heavens and the earth, which, uh, again, this can just be translated, um, the skies and the land. So we, I just hear people go like, see, look, God created heaven with the gold mansions and the streets and things, and then the earth. And uh, starts feeding into the sort of dualism that we have yeah. and this eschatological departureism that I, I don't really love. Um, no, it's when God created the skies and the land, and that's important because now we're starting to see some order mm-hmm. uh, be referenced here. Um, again, also, this is not a, a whole lot to do with uh, metaphysical assumptions. So we're we're getting more of a geologic portrayal of how God is ordering uh ordering creation there. Yeah. Um and and then we start getting into some uh the the authors start taking some swings here. Mm-hmm. Uh cuz this is where we get this uh idea of formless and void uh and darkness covered the face of the the earth. Right. Um and this would be, this is an example of not personifying the deep. Yes. Not personifying those mm-hmm. material things yeah, as... The winds is yeah. personified in the Babylonian story. Yeah. It, none, none of that's included yeah. here. Um, mm-hmm. Now, what what I really love about this, so the, the phrase here that's used is tohu vavohu when it's talking about formless void yeah. and darkness. The formless void, I've seen some rabbis... Uh, translate that as raw emptiness, chaos, confusion, and unreality. I heard wild and waste, which I thought was very poetic. Yeah. And uh, so there's this particular absence there that is the initial condition of the world that Mm -hmm. this God is now going to uh, interact, like imminently interact with. Right. So that becomes the force of this. Also, the word darkness here is choshek, which um, doesn't just mean... um, it's not, there's no light. It also had, carries this nuance of absence and obscurity. So there, the picture you're given, formless and void, there's a, a mysterious incompleteness to the world that God, again, is going to interact with. And it's going to have nothing to do with these personified uh, demiurges from mm-hmm. these different cultures. Um, so how will God interact with the tohu vavohu? So then we read that the wind or the breath mm-hmm. uh, of the divine swept or moved over the waters. And depending on your translation, you'll get wind, you could get breath, you could get spirit. It's all the same word in Hebrew, which I think is really important. Mm-hmm. It will be. Um, but you're starting to get, you know, you had brought up the wisdom uh, tradition and yeah. how there's sort of a co-creator presence mm-hmm. with this transcendent being. And you're starting to get the first uh, nuances of uh, God's multiplicity mm-hmm. within its singularity. And uh, so you're seeing that here. But then you're also getting a picture of imminence, which is God not only being a transcendent source of creation that exists outside of creation, but also a being that is present in creation. Yeah. And uh, within within the various traditions around Israel, there was never really a both of that. There was, there, there's a, you know, transcendence maybe, 
most gods were just larger versions of human beings. Yeah, sure. This one is transcendent and imminent. Um, and it's hovering over the waters, which would be the deep, that tohu vavohu. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, there's a word here in Hebrew used, uh, rakath. And I've written whole things just about this one word that never gets paid attention to. Um, but why is the spirit, presence, breath, wind of God just hovering? And the, the word hovering there, it's sometimes um, translated as sweeping or moving uh, over the waters. And the the picture of Rakoff is one of this like sacred pause yeah. before any action begins. Mm-hmm. And the Jewish tradition felt it necessary to insert that there. And again, you're thinking about liturgy and ritual, Mm -hmm. and there's almost this ritualistic embrace that God has with the world before anything happens. And that's the same invitation of Sabbath. That's the same invitation of the festivals. Mm -hmm. So this is an example of how human beings should be interacting with the constant movement and change of the world. So as we bring chaos or order into chaos, as, as we continue to create this is something we're supposed to learn from, this this holy pause, uh, this synchronizing before the next process begins in, in our life yeah. or in the world. Um, and I often like, so why does why does God stop there? Is, is God trying to synchronize God's self with what's going on? Um, now, and some rabbis even point out that this is a moment of anxiety, for God or or even a moment of doubt and just to foreshadow Genesis 3 there's a whole rabbinic tradition that says God knew exactly what was going to happen (laughs) so before God creates starts this like unleashes the child into the world God stops and has this holy intimate moment with it as as a, a, a sense of like a deep breath. Okay, here we go. Hold the breath. This is what's going to happen. I'm ready for it. Mm-hmm. And then begins. And That's we're supposed to pattern ourselves off of that as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I hate to, de- boy, that was such a great thought. I almost hate to turn it, but uh, the same John Walton, and I'm sure other scholars have pointed this out before, that when we think about God resting in that Sabbath, it's not like, don't get the picture in your mind of God kicking back in a futon, that he's resting because he was tired or God that, that God needed to stop, but more in the sense that rests as opposed to unrest so the rest was more about now order has been imposed and when we interact with sabbath it's a way of saying we spend six days trying to impose order upon our world and this may be a little bit of a midrash we need to stop in that one moment and recognize that we have no control over this that this is Mm. up to that divine being to give us that moment. And we'll get to some Sabbath stuff here, Mm -hmm. but like one of the important parts is recognizing that you as a uh, sentient finite being did not create the world. Yeah, that's exactly right. And you're not going to. And so this first picture that you get is uh, we should pattern ourselves after how the divine approaches creation, but also recognize that we aren't going to be able to do all of that. So that's that's actually the the first section of Genesis. That part gets neglected a little more. Yeah. Now we start getting into the things that people recognize, right? The, the it's almost become a pop culture statement of let there be light. Like somebody flips on a light switch and sure. let there be light. Mm-hmm. Um, 
we all recognize that. So this is actually uh, one of the first things that happens. And, and so this, the state of the world, Tohavavuhu, Hosek, and God said, let there be light. Um, so this is our first act, but we have a problem. There's no sun, there's no moon, there's no light sources. Mm-hmm. What is going on here? And uh, the, the Hebrew, if you read this in Hebrew, you don't get the sense that it's physical light. Uh, there's, the word here is or, which is a primordial light. Um, so it's not light as substance, it's light as identity. And uh, there's, there was one rabbinic tradition um, that I've seen that actually views this more as light as oneness. And they say, this is not the kind of light you see with your eyes, but the kind of light you see with your soul. Oh. So that's or. And, and I love looking at it that way because it's, it's chaos. It's unreality. It's mm-hmm. darkness. It's void. It's formless. It's wild. It's waste. And then God says, let there be wholeness. And everything starts coming together, almost like you have all of this raw material. Yeah. And what you're seeing is God actually start moving that raw material into something mm-hmm. beautiful. Um, so when we read this part, you have to get, get our, get our heads out of like the physical light thing. Yeah. Because if we only focus on that, we miss, we miss what's actually happening here. This is the first step in order coming from chaos Mm -hmm. that the essence of God's being now is allowing the world to live and move and breathe. Also notice here, let there be light does not eliminate darkness. Ah, yes, this is true. The darkness precedes the light. It is now confined, Mm -hmm. but this will actually be important for the question of theodicy, which will come up again and again throughout the Hebrew scriptures. Why is there suffering? Mm -hmm. Well, God never promised that there wouldn't be. The the darkness isn't uh, gotten rid of. It is overcome, right? So God brings order out of the chaos, but the chaos isn't gone here. Yeah. Because the waters are still going to have a role to play, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So it's a very way, uh, interesting way of allowing this to continue to be complex. Yeah. And real quickly, I want to mention uh, something that we already kind of talked about. But, in, you know, instead of God using violence to create all of this, God uses words. And um, Abraham Joshua Heschel, the famous person, who brought up how words create worlds. And uh, as a communication theorist myself, uh, this actually resonates with everything that is true about communication theory. But God speaks the world into existence, and and this creates a very powerful perspective on words and language and communication uh, in general. So the fact that that has a metaphysical, cosmological role to play is important. But you're going to see God speaking all of this. And uh, that that's really powerful for the Jewish imagination uh, in general. Uh, and you're going to see this implication of blessing. And uh, this happens several times. But uh, the blessings are always going to be, this is a gift, but with the gift comes responsibility. And I just point that out because Christians tend to have a uh, very selfish view of blessing. Right? Yeah. Like, look how blessed I am. Blessing always comes with the responsibility. And really the role of the blessings in Genesis 1, <clears throat> in Genesis 2 as well, is to set up the covenant. Because the covenant is going to be all about Israel through Abraham being blessed so as to bless the world. Right. 
So, and God said, let there be light, right? Then we're going to see this part uh, where God says the light is good, which is the Hebrew word tov. And I love the Hebrew word uh, tov, but the, the first reaction to the light is that it is good. And every time one of these things is added to the world, we're always told that it is good, that it is right. It's, it's where it needs to be. Now, what we have to combat here is that nowhere in Genesis 1 or anywhere are we told, and God said it was perfect. <laughs> yeah. Okay, because perfect is a very static uh, pronouncement on something. Good implies continuation, and also that it can continue to be even more good, right? So I just hear a lot of people talk about, well, when God created the world, it was perfect, and, and it was like this high point. It was a good point, but the intention seems to be, and we'll see this as we go, the intention seems to be that this goodness will continue to grow. Um, it, it wasn't meant to be static. So that's something to pay attention to with that. It's almost as if God was giving agency to the creation to to continue then. It's sort of a, um, oh, we've talked about this before, where it's like a continuing idea. God speaks, God is speaking. And and so it's a, a way of allowing all, both creation and then later the human beings to go ahead and do the thing and become co-creators in it and become agents in their own creation. Many pronouncements in the Bible are, uh, if we were to compare it to grammar, are present progressive. Yeah. It is and continues to be. Yeah, which I think uh, is pretty cool. So that's here, but also, you know, this pronouncement, this goodness, it sets the act of creation apart from the tohu vabohu and the hoshek, right? So this is, uh, in, in, in all of that messiness, you have something that is now good. Um, and I think it's important to see that the inherent goodness proclaims something about materiality and the earth, and the rest of the narrative as this goes, at nowhere do we say, do we see God go, well, this all went to hell. Right. We see God say, it's good, and it's still good. And if you take on the name Christian, um, the incarnation, at least in the Eastern Orthodox perspective, the uh, incarnation is, is the most adamant form of proclaiming that it's still good. So nowhere do we see the goodness abandoned. And that's another thing when we call it perfect. Now we have that problem because yeah. it's not perfect, it seems, anymore. But it's still good. And it continues to be good as the narrative continues. So let's look at the days. Um, okay. Because this gets a lot of uh, emphasis. Um, so you had mentioned that day one is where uh, the light yeah. becomes a day. And the darkness becomes night. So first thing we have to just acknowledge is that they both still exist. Yeah. Also, we have not been given light sources yet. So when it's talking about light and day and darkness and night, it still seems to be in reference to unity and order and goodness versus tohu vavohu. Mm -hmm. And they both exist. Um, what I, this always seemed obvious to me. But I've noticed that a lot of people are like, oh, I never thought of it that way before. So uh, modern days begin uh, at the beginning of the day is the morning. Right. Dawn uh, is the beginning dawn. of our day. Yes. Okay. Uh, you'll notice that one of the liturgical poetic uh, um, motifs is that 
the beginning of the day is actually night and ah. it moves to light because mm-hmm. um, it'll say there was evening and there was morning the first day. Um, and the Jewish people still, uh, you know, traditionally interact with it that yeah, way. You I know? knew that, but I didn't realize why until you just said that. Yeah. Because, well, you think of Sabbath. Sabbath begins mm-hmm. Friday yeah. at sunset. Mm-hmm. Um, so the day is conceived of as moving from darkness to light. Well, what have we seen so far in mm-hmm. the creation narrative? Yep. The world just moved from darkness to light, from yeah, Hoshek yeah. to Or, from Tohu Vabohu to ordered, unified goodness. <laughs> How interesting. And I really love, this is such a great sacramental image for the Jewish people. Every day is a reminder that the world has moved towards goodness and order and unity. So yeah. every day you get to experience, yeah, darkness becomes light, right? The tohu vavohu is we're given some hope. There's still some goodness here. Um, and we get to almost participate in that refrain every single day. We lose that if we think of it the other way. And, you know, I don't, I still say good morning. You know, the day has begun in right. the morning. I still say that, but I love allowing that to um, impede itself on my consciousness. Um. But day and night, they don't become times until later, right? Uh, a, a way of distinguishing time. That's going to come and that's going to be important. For now, they're just symbols for this mysterious tension of the world, right? Day and night are two different ways we experience the world. God is primarily interacting with those. That's what we have so far, right? That's day one. Okay. All right, day two. I think you mentioned this as well, yep, right? they do. Mm-hmm. Water. It's separated. Air and water. And the sky forms. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're told, we're told that a dome separates the waters above and the waters below, and it results in air, sort of yeah. vacuum. That, that kind of goes along be. with the Enimu Elish, because yeah. Tiamat is split in two yep. by the breath of Marduk, and he takes the top half of her and makes her into the sky, and the bottom half of her and makes her into the waters of the earth, the land. And this is where you're getting one of those uh, references. Yeah. That, you know, it's split. But it was split violently, whereas this is like God just speaks and said, it's done. Yeah, and nowhere do we get mention of Tiamat. And this is where it's important to realize we don't even get a definite article like the, it's waters. Yep. No, they're just waters. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. The Babylonians have been saying that it's like this weird thing. Nope, it's just waters. Mm-hmm. So uh, we look at it and go, "Separated the waters." That's not correct. There's <laughs> no water up there. That's not the point. It's they're trying to contrast Tiamat and Marduk right yeah, now. Exactly. Um, and and this is where we have to do some transposition. Imagine you live in a world with no telescopes and no science, and it rains, and then. You have the oceans, and sometimes they flood. You think there is like a big thing of pool of water up there and a big thing of pool of water down there, mm-hmm. and it must have been separated. And this is a very ancient, uh, primordial view of uh, how the world was structured. Sure, and how else would you do? It's kind of like you could say when you think something's one way, it'd be kind of like the way at one time we thought, you know, that the earth was the center and the, and the planets and the sun all went around it. And then it got proved different. Now we know better. But, you know, back then they just didn't really know. But that wasn't their point anyway. They weren't considering right. whether or not this wasn't a description of the physical world. This had something um, theological and metaphysical to say. Yeah. And 
I don't like interacting with the science part of this much, but you you got to believe that, you know, 5,000 years from now, people are going to look back at what we called right. And be like, well, they had no clue what they were talking about. Well, yeah. have the same kind of grace, but also see that if you get caught up in that conversation, you've missed it. You've missed the thing that they are right about. Um, so that's important there. Then uh, another thing to point out that we see here, uh, God speaks, and we already mentioned the, the power, the words create worlds. God speaks, and it was so. Um, and that's, that's similar to what you're saying with the splitting, is all it takes is God speaks, and it was so. There's nothing else that has to happen there, which we would expect. The, the ancient reader would expect, well, God spoke, and then, you know, whose body did he flay? Yeah, it's like, and then what? Nope. Where's, the, where's the violence? They're almost like going to stop and go, wait, that story sounds different. Yeah, and it, nope, it was so. So, uh, and you're going to see that refrain again and again. Day three, the lowers, wa- the lower waters gather, and now you get land. So you got air, and now you get land. Yeah. Um, and the land, you know, it it. We think land geologically ground. That's part of it. Land is also how you get to determine who owns what. Mm-hmm. That you own land. You have rights to land, and so here you see. God creates all the land. It's not your land. It's God's land. Um, and that's going to be a picture that the prophets are going to refer to again yeah. and again. Yeah, that, that might be important too, because a lot of the reason that they told those stories in the Babylonian context was to show how their society was ordered with people like the king being the person who maybe would own all those things on down to mm. humans as slaves. And we'll get into the way humans were portrayed different in the Babylonian story where they were slaves of the gods as opposed to in the creation story where they are um, important agents in the story. Yep. So that that's a, that's just a little nuance that we get. Yep. The land's formed. And look, no, it's not this nation's land or that. It's just land. Yeah. Um, and then also here you get uh, the names for the earth and the sea. Then you get this line, let the earth put forth vegetation, plants bearing seed and trees uh, with fruit that bear seed. And uh, we miss a slight detail there that's important, especially when we call creation perfect. Who creates the trees? Who creates the plants? Oh, yeah. Does God create them? Kind of. But it says, let the earth put forth vegetation. The, the tree itself, the earth itself, the plants itself have this creative ability built in. Yeah. And that's where the phrase good is important because this is meant to continue to go and go and go and go and go. Uh, the Hebrew word here used is desha. And it implies that the plants are also producing. The creation is moving. And that's, it's not static. Yeah, you got it's, the seeds. It's moving. This has an ecological component that uh, creation itself has some agency to it, right? Um, By the way, the same image of multiplication is going to be given to humans later. So that's an important thing to see. Then you get day four. And uh, hopefully now you'll start seeing that uh, corresponding days are connected. So day one, let there be light. Day four, we're getting sources of light, all right? Day two, sky, and day three with water and land or... Uh, you're going to start seeing that the day day five corresponds with day two, yep. day six corresponds with day three. Um, so 
the lights are put in the dome of the sky because remember they thought it was a dome and uh, it specifically manifests as uh, darkness and light and whatever we want to go with I mean it specifically says that these are to act as signs for seasons days and years they also provide light Mm -hmm. but the the important thing seems to be how this coordinates the rhythm of life right uh not not so much like somehow proving days and 24-hour periods and stuff like that. It doesn't seem to get too caught up in that. And why is this important? Well, and another note to make is that uh, there's the greater light and the lesser light, right? And uh, the greater rules the lesser and the stars, um, and they rule over day and night and separate the light from darkness. All of that's really important because... What it's not saying is that the lights are gods. Exactly. That the sun's a god, the moon's a god, the stars are... It's not saying that. Sure. They're part of creation. Yeah, and that's all part of that story, too. Uh, When Marduk says he's going to conquer Tiamat, the other gods say... He says to them, well, I'll only do it if you make me your king. And so they say, okay, well, then when he conquers Tiamat, he then assigns them to those roles so they like the sun and the sun has to come up and go down and the moon has to go across the sky and they don't want to do these tasks anymore that's part of that mythology cycle in this story these are not those kinds of things these are not gods that have been created to do something they are been directly created by god and have a purpose that god has imposed on them yep and so when we read this is the greater light well it's marduk right nope yeah no doesn't say that um and, and specifically the sun and the moon and the stars, this is often associated with uh, Shemesh or Yariah, um, who would be the sun god and uh, the latter being the moon god. These are gods in the cultures around Israel. And, and there's a specific note to make. Again, when are they, when are they uh, passing on this narrative? Well, the astral cults that were spread throughout the Assyrian Empire and even the Babylonian Empire... The stars were deemed to uh, control destiny, right? These heavenly oh, bodies absolutely. believed to, you know, be animated and to animate life. So not only are these not named, the mm-hmm. gods aren't named, they're not given that personification. Um, their only task is to, they're assigned to mark times for the worship of God. Right. And to serve the good of humankind and creation. That's it. They <laughs> don't have any of this other power. Mm-hmm. So again, they're trying to make very direct statements about all of this all right so then you're going to get day five which day two was when the waters were separated and you got the sky yeah well now you get water and sky creatures yeah birds and fish um so a lot of these creatures would be very mythological in in those societies right um and they often played a role in actual creation and none of that happens here. So they're kind of, they're just like everything else we're seeing so far. They're kind of stripped of their divinity. Um, but you get swarms of living sea creatures, birds that fly across the dome of the sky. Uh, sea monsters are mentioned. Right? Sea monsters. Sea uh, Tiamat again. Yeah. She is. And uh, every creature that swarms in the water, every winged bird, you get all those. They have no role to play. They're not uh, somehow part of the creation process. They're a response to creation, a participant with creation. But they are, we are told that they are good. And we are told that they are blessed. Yeah. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. So they're part of that same thing we saw with the plants and the trees. Also note here, this will be important later, 
even the unclean animals are good and blessed. Okay. Because we try to make clean and unclean and like good and bad. No, they're they're good and they're blessed and they're given the the, the same proclamation. Um. Day six, land creatures. So day six is when the land was formed yep. and the earth. And we get land creatures. Uh, we're given notes of living creatures of every kind, cattle, creeping things, which I love that. That's, how, that's what they <laughs> called them. Uh, and the wild of every kind. And they're given the same notion that we saw with the uh, water and sky creatures. Then day six, you get this almost climactic moment. Mm-hmm. Where humankind is made in our image. Yes. Notice it's our image. God said, let us make humans in our image. Yeah. And this often comes up where people go, why is God speaking in first person plural? Yeah. As God is to speaking to God's self. Singular. <laughs> and uh, I think this is one that I'll save for when we get to um, the the book of Numbers because it's something that we, we talk about here at the farmhouse occasionally, um, that there is a uh, multiplicity within the singularity. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that in a metaphysical sense, those of you who are metaphysical philosophers and want to go, well, you're claiming transcendence. Transcendence has to be absolute and singular. I'm not saying that it's not. I'm saying that there is a perceived multiplicity within this divine being that uh, the Hebrews did acknowledge. Mm-hmm. Now, I think you can also claim that they uphold monotheism in some way, but it is an evolved one. And and it is one that includes uh, this plurality within unity yeah. of God. Yeah, so, that might be one of those water they swim in kind of things because yeah. they did have somewhat of a what they would call monolatry where it's sure our God is the supreme one, but other ones exist. And then moving into you no... Know, God, our God, Yahweh is the only God. And the other ones don't exist at all. Yep. And and I, on the other end of the spectrum is people go, hey, look, the Trinity is in Genesis 1. Mm. And uh, if you're, by Trinity, you mean there are, uh, there's a variety of imminent presences of God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can, you can make that case. That's fine. Um, but it's worth noting. Yeah, it says R. It's first person plural. Yeah. So you got to deal with that. Um, and humans are uh, told that they rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the cattle, wild animals, creeping things, etc. And be careful here. Because oh, yes. I hope the word, address this. The word rule over is the same word used a little bit earlier for the sun and the moon. Mm-hmm. So uh, however the sun relates to the moon is also how the human should relate to creation. Yeah. Which, as far as I know, uh, and as far as I can tell from the ancient perspective, was not destructive. Yes. This um, is not objects for us to just use as we please and use up as we please. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, well, the, well, let's let's move because this is, this is going to come up in the specific blessing given. Right. But I just want to point out the same word used for the sun and the moon is mm-hmm. what's used here. So yeah. whatever claim you're going to be make about well, humans were told we get to rule over. Okay, uh, use the sun and moon as your directive there as how it's discussed mm-hmm. uh, back in day four. Yeah. Because that's what's used here. Um, this is where we get uh, a couple important things. Made in God's image. Um, this is going to become 
the Imago Dei, right? Mm-hmm. One of the most used phrases uh, theologically um, about about human human beings. Um, and I think you brought this up. Um, the 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 image of God was not a phrase that the Jewish people made up. No, they this was this was utilized in a lot of ways. So we can't go. Um, what's what's unique um, just about that phrase? We have to go. What did it mean in the context with which that phrase had already been used? Um, so like Babylon. The moon and the stars are made in the image of the gods. Yes. Right? In Egypt, royalty was in the image of God. Mm-hmm. Right? So, um, you know, you'd have a viceroy and then the representative that was in their image. Well, the, the priest or the, uh, the pharaoh um, or whoever the ruler was would have been in the image of God. So you want to know what a certain God is like? Well, you got to go to that temple. You got to look at the priest. Then you can see. Yeah. So to say... Not not only are the sun and moon and the stars not in the image of God, but all human beings are. Right. Um, is not just it, it, yes, it is a a take on equality, if you want to use it that way. Yeah. Um, it's also saying that each individual human being has the same equal potential of divine essence as every other one. Mm-hmm. You know, fast forward to Mount Sinai where. Uh, Israel is a, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. That's utilizing that image of God thing. Why? Why are they all a kingdom of priests? Like you know, Egypt has priests. Well, because they all show the world God. Mm-hmm. Again, this They're is kind that of image. that same idea of humans are not slaves to the gods. Humans are agents along with God. Mm-hmm. And and I think it's particularly necessary to point this out because it's gonna come. It's gonna show up throughout the Hebrew scriptures. Yeah. This <clears throat> being in God's image precedes Israel's election. Right. So Israel has not been given the covenant yet. And so therefore all human beings have this sort of blessing, this identity that exists uh, as a antecedent to whatever special role Israel has. Yeah. Um, and I think that's really cool to see. So we're going to run into Melchizedek. Later, mm-hmm. and it's going to be, how did he, why, what's going on? Well, he's also in the image of God. So uh, that helps clear that up a little bit. Um, but uh, you had brought this up in, in some form a, a little bit ago, um, that human beings are the only replica of God then. Yes. They're in God's image. They're, they're the only replica of God. So when you get the commandment, you can't have any images. Well, you don't need them because... Yeah, you just have to the look. Image of God. Yeah, and and in that same sense, when we're going to go back to the idea of the uh, Israelites keeping their identity, they're saying you can't conquer our God. You just carried us off. We are the image of our God, mm-hmm. so that our nation can't lose it. Our identity. We cannot be destroyed because we are the image of our God. Yeah. We don't. You know. You can't carry our idols away from our temple just because you burned down our temple doesn't mean that we are gone. Well, and like take that kung fu move further. Yeah. And the person carrying you off is also the image of God. Exactly. So like you just tried yeah, to destroy a God. Well, you're it too. So, you know, what are you <laughs> going to do? Um, but, you know, we want to make that into equality. Absolutely. We're all, we all have this, this common notion that, you know, it even precedes Israel's election. But this is also a way to uh, explain why you shouldn't have any images. Because the only thing that is in the image of God are mm-hmm. human beings. Yeah. And that says something itself about human beings too. Um, now 
they're given the same blessing to uh, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Yep. But being in the image of God, having this unique role, they're also told to subdue the earth. And we're told they're given everything that has been mentioned for creatures, um, that they also have the breath of life. And, or no, they're, we're told that all of the things outside of the creatures, which have the breath of life, mm-hmm. they're allowed to consume. Oh, yeah. Um, so subdue the earth, rule over the earth. The, the words here, I, and I just remember these because they're really fun to say, is radah and kabash. And uh, so we, we think of like subdue, rule over, dominate, mm-hmm. you know, the, but wait, does the sun dominate the moon? Um, no, the emphasis here in Hebrew is to care for, to guide. So as creation is moving, remember it's, it's being fruitful, it's multiplying, it's filling the earth, it's bearing seeds that bear more, bear more, bear more. Uh, humans are given this role that's kind of like you're going to be co-creators of that moving thing. Mm-hmm. You're going to be participants with God in in directing where this goes. So I often look at uh, this role given to humans as more of a parent. Like you have a responsibility for it. You know, you're like a shepherd. You're, you're seeing to their survival. So anything that doesn't see to their survival is going directly against the blessing that they're given. It's not an entitlement. It's a responsibility. Yeah, that was the word I was going to use, responsibility. Um, Because we seem to be unique in the way that we are able to interact with the divine. All things may have that breath of life and that divinity in it, but human beings are the ones who can recognize it. And I love what Carl Sagan said, who was actually a scientist and maybe wouldn't be happy that I used his quote in this context, but he said, human beings are the universe observing itself. I say that we are like the, the ones who can look back at God. God can look upon creation. We're the ones who can look back and respond in a, in a unique way. And so that gives us a unique responsibility then to care for the rest of that. Yep. So I, I just think it's really important to point that out because I've seen that, that entitlement used really negatively. And it's like, well, oh, yeah. not only does it not say that, it actually says the opposite. Mm-hmm. Um, there needs to be a certain discipline and diligence and care used with that authority. Yeah. Um, so it's not a tyrant, it's a parent. Yeah, it's, yeah it's, it's not an invitation to just go ahead and, and use up, yeah. like I said before, objectify, use up, um, consider these things there at your hand for whatever you want to use them for. You can't treat it that way. Now, the another thing we see here at this climactic moment is this reference to the breath of life, which, which I uh, mentioned. And one point to consider with this is that humans have the breath of life. So do all living things. Absolutely. Um, so there is a certain equality about that that I don't see uh, brought up very often. Um, but then you also get a command, which is that Nothing with the breath of life can take the breath of life from anything else that has the breath of life, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. The implication here is that they're all vegetarians to start, even mm-hmm. the animals. Yeah. So no animal can kill another animal. No animal can kill a person. No person can kill an animal. Mm-hmm. Um, I only bring this up because as you uh, read into Genesis 9 and then Leviticus that's going to be really important. Yeah. So you got to know that that starts here and um, we'll hit that more once we get to those texts. But that's the end of Genesis 1. Mm-hmm. Not the end of the creation poem. No. Because as you begin Genesis 2, you see that day 7 
it was tucked nicely right there. And, uh, you know, we spoke about this. This is the, this is the climax of creation. So creation after day six is not finished. Right. In fact, it's not until the Sabbath day, the, the ceasing day in day seven, that we're told that it's finished. Right. So you have to see day seven, uh, not as a day off, but as a day of creation. At this point, everything is finished and work was rested from. Um, and it's a day that the day itself is blessed. So this is the third blessing you see. Mm-hmm. The day is mm-hmm. blessed and it's marked as holy. Um, and then we get this line. Uh, These are the generations of the heaven and the earth when they were created. Yeah. Wind up then. Which is technically the first genealogy. and But we do need to see this rest as the culmination. And really, I think that day seven is just a setup for the importance of Sabbath within Jewish tradition, which Sabbath only makes sense once you have experienced Exodus. But here you have a, sort of a foreshadowing that this is going to be central to their identity. Uh, and in fact, important, like Sabbath is the only command that I can think of offhand where you can uh, be killed for not doing it. I'm not sure. I'll uh, go which is what you say. Which mm-hmm. is its own yeah. interesting, uh, the, the Hebrew being used there is really interesting. Hopefully we get to that when we get to a book like Exodus. Um, but often the Sabbath day here, day seven, is portrayed as an enthronement. Yeah. I, I don't know if you've heard that before. Yeah, that um, which, idea. which is mm-hmm. the same thing that Marduk ends with. Mm-hmm. But here, uh, Marduk ends with his enthronement. Creation is finished when he kills everybody. Yeah. Uh, God's ends when God has created the world and rested. Yeah. Supposedly on God's throne. Everything's under control. Right. And rest versus unrest. And, and in Mar, yeah. And in Marduk's, uh, it's a certain space then, a certain place is where that happens, and it's holy. Well, here, there's no specific place. Sabbath hollows uh, all of humanity, even creation. So it's an enthronement, but it's like the whole world is enthroned mm-hmm. uh, together. And this is where Heschel, again, has a great comment where, uh, you know, for the Jewish people, they celebrate time, not space. And so become attuned to the holiness and time and the results of creation uh, help reveal the mystery of creation within that. And um, so it begins setting up this understanding of why Sabbath is important, not just as a day off, Mm -hmm. but as a fulfillment of something that deals with the very nature of who God is and who creation is in response to that. Um, So that's the first poem. Now, as you move into Genesis chapter 2, after that part, uh, you get another account of creation. So that's what we'll look at next time. Genesis 2 and Genesis 3, it's a story that is meant to be combined. They're meant to work together. And so that's everything with Genesis 1 and that little bit that comes into Genesis 2 from the same creation poem. And now we need to move on to Genesis chapter 2 and 3. And that's what we'll do next time on the Bible Archives.